And now hear God's holy word from Matthew chapter 18. We've studied God's law for the last 10 weeks or so, and now I want to make, at least for a Sunday or two, some New Covenant, New Testament applications of God's law. So here from Matthew 18, the words of Jesus. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if you will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you as a heathen and a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father, we live in a uh, disordered, chaotic world, and we need so badly to hear your clear voice today. We ask you to speak to us by your Holy Spirit. You have clearly spoken through your word. Help me to clearly articulate it uh, this morning, that we might receive it, that we might obey it, that we might apply it rightly. Uh, Father, deliver us from all error, deliver us from all distraction, we pray. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our nearest kinsman. Amen. Amen. If you've ever played a lot of board games in your family and you play the same game over and over, you play the same game several times, over time, you tend to develop your own set of rules for those games. Certain house rules get established. There are alternative ways to play, amendments to the published rules that make more sense to you or make more sense to your family or help the game move along, especially when playing with younger members, when, when there are little people in the house playing the game along with you. There are things you do alongside. There's also a factor in many families of playing games so often with the wrong rules. You've misread or misapplied or misunderstood a rule, but that misapplication of the rule or that misunderstanding becomes the rule and you don't know any other way to play it. That's just the way you play it in your family. Monopoly tends to be the game that has a lot of, of these kinds of house rules and misapplications of rules. It's been around so long and it's so popular, it's been played so many times that, that it attracts this sort, of, this sort of thing. And I played a lot of it growing up when I was a kid in my family. I mean, you take the money and you put it in a pile in the middle and you get it with free parking if you pay taxes or other things or pay to get out of jail, or do you not? Or when you land on a property, do you, if you don't buy it, does it go up for auction for everybody or does it just sit there until somebody else lands on it? And you probably have strong opinions. If you've ever played Monopoly, you may have strong opinions about that. But as long as you're playing with the group of people who are all sharing a sense of what is legal and what is acceptable and what is not legal or acceptable, as long as you have the shared sense of rules, the game goes fine. But when a cousin comes over or a friend comes over and they have their own house rules or their own misapplication, their own misinterpretation of the rules, and you try to play without establishing up front those rules, confusion and chaos will rear their ugly heads. Accusations will get unfurled, chaos will reign, and little hotels will get thrown and houses go everywhere. You cannot play a fair or enjoyable game where everyone shares a different sense for how the game is to be played. 
Well, the Lord Jesus has given us rules for human relationships. He's given us guidelines for interpersonal interaction. And only when you and I have a shared sense of how these relationships are to work, how do we deal with offenses and injuries and and disagreements, unless we have a common understanding, peace and chaos, uh, there will be no peace and and chaos will, will reign. The Lord Jesus tells us clearly what to do when there is a disagreement, when there is an injury, when there is an offense, as there inevitably will be. The scriptures don't cultivate for us this sense of naivety when it comes to the realities of life in a fallen world. Neither Moses nor Jesus uh, tried to uh, uh, distract us from the fact that, that the worst case scenario might very well happen. They don't, they don't say, oh, this bad thing might never happen and probably won't happen, and so we don't need to think through the, the repercussions of it. They, they bring out the worst case scenarios, and they say, this probably will happen, and here's what you do about it. We've taken the last several weeks, as I said, to study God's law, his ordinances, his precepts for living in an environment where things do go wrong. People do sin. They fail intentionally and unintentionally, maliciously and foolishly, willfully and accidentally. And we're not left to figure out on our own what we're to do when these kinds of things happen. The Bible doesn't present conflict as if it's a surprise, but it presents conflict as if it's a given. Now, now some Christians try to lament over the fact that they, they tend to lament that there's not just conflict in their lives, but, but they feel as if something has gone horribly wrong because they have conflict to begin with. As if we assume that Christians don't ever disagree or that we never offend or that we never struggle. But the fact is we do mess up, we do offend, we do injure someone else, and that shouldn't be a shock to us. It will happen. The question is, what are you going to do to repair it? Whenever I've done premarital counseling, I always do a session or part of a session on how to fight fairly. And I'm usually talking to a couple of lovebirds who are absolutely smitten with each other. And when I talk about how to fight fairly, they think, us? Fight? How could that happen? We would never. We would never fight. We would never have a disagreement. We would never have a conflict. But I, I, you have to platform it and you have to uh, assure them there, there is going to be conflict and you must prepare for it and you must prepare to respond to it correctly. So when there is a sin, when there's offense, when there's injury, are we going to follow Jesus's roadmap for correcting the wrong or are we going to play by our own house rules? We live in a society where it seems that no one knows how to make reconciliation. Whether you consider nations or companies or families or churches, we have evidence everywhere that no one can figure out how to fix problems. Terrorists, rioters, military invasions, broken marriages, shattered families, split churches, and feuding neighbors all demonstrate the breakdown of biblical conflict resolution where everyone plays by their own house rules when it comes to resolving conflicts, it becomes nearly impossible to right wrongs, to have real reconciliation, to even land in a better place than where we started is impossible without following God's word. 
That's the opportunity the conflict gives us, by the way. The, the, the opportunity the conflict gives us is to end up closer and tighter and more knit together than ever before. But again, that's not going to happen when we follow our own counsel, lean on our own understanding, and refuse to do what Jesus says. Well, what are some of the ways that we typically handle offense? What are some of the ways that we typically handle sin or injuries? Well, some people want to pretend outwardly as if there isn't a problem. They swallow the anger or swallow the resentment and they go on with life pretending that everything is fine while they continue to teem with rage inside. You hold this fire in your, in your chest, in your heart, in your head. You feel the tension in your shoulders and your neck and you walk around with this anger thinking it's going to hurt the other person, thinking that somehow that's going to resolve the wrong. But you end up with all of the anguish on yourself and often the offender doesn't even know that something is wrong. That's one way, and that's a bad way to deal with offenses. Some others just like to avoid the group or the person that offended them and pretend like they don't exist. They cut themselves off from all communication. They go into shutdown mode and they say, I'm not, I'm not dealing with this, I can't deal with this, and they avoid the offender altogether. Some others take out their anger verbally or physically on anyone and everyone who injures them in the slightest way. They're, they're driven by revenge. You think you can say that to me? You think you can do that to me? Watch what I can do to you. And you escalate and you escalate and it becomes a feud. Some well-meaning Christians do something else though. Some well-meaning Christians think that the way to handle sin is just to kind of paper over it. Just pretend like everything is all right. That's what forgiveness means to them. Pretend that the other person hasn't done anything wrong. Well, that doesn't work either because if someone has been offensive or aggressive or dishonest or immoral, nothing is gained if we try to drum up something called forgiveness without ever confronting the real sin. Forgiveness doesn't mean that we say it didn't really happen or it didn't really matter. Now, granted, when, uh, sometimes when we're offended, it, it didn't really happen. Sometimes, uh, in, in some cases, it doesn't really matter. And I'm not, I'm not talking about um, issues where love can cover those wrongs. And, and we'll, we'll make some more qualifications on that as we go. In, in some cases, what's needed is not forgiveness, but clarification. But the only way you get clarification, again, is following what Jesus says. That's the only way. Obey Jesus, and you'll get clarification or forgiveness or restoration. So seeking forgiveness is necessary when something did happen and when it does matter, and you deal with it the way that Jesus says to deal with it, and you end up loving each other more than you did at the beginning. You're not going to be bitter. You're not going to go into avoidance. You don't explode in rage. You don't clam up. You don't blow up. You deal with it directly and maturely the way Jesus commands. So let's follow what Jesus says and, and take a look. And I know this passage is familiar, maybe overly familiar to many of you, but we have to go back and retool and remember because the one thing that Satan wants is disorder. The thing that he wants is chaos. He wants us to be suspicious and to and to harbor offenses, and he wants us to nurse bitterness, and he wants us to not do what Jesus says. And the way to combat that is to keep reminding ourselves, how do we clean up messes in the body of Christ? How do we do this? How do we keep, how do we keep short accounts? 
Well, this instruction from the Lord comes right in the middle of a section where Jesus is addressing the importance of humility, the seriousness of sin, the necessity of pursuing the wayward, and our duty as people to forgive. We're forgiven, and so we must forgive. So he begins, if you are following along in Matthew 18, and you go back to the beginning of the chapter, you see that this whole section begins with the disciples asking Jesus, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus turned to a doctor of theology, and, and Jesus turned to a scholar, and Jesus turned to a, a pastor. No, that's not what he did. Jesus takes a child, and he sets them in the middle of them, and he says, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you're converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless you humble yourself as a child, you have no part of me. You don't have any part in the kingdom of heaven. This flavors all of the instruction to come afterward. This flavors the instruction on handling offenses. The process begins and ends in humility. We approach offenses. We approach wrongs with this perspective. You know what? I could be wrong. My understanding may be skewed. My perception is limited. I am not all wise and all knowing. I must acknowledge that in humility, esteeming others more highly than myself, assuming the best. And so that's how Jesus begins this conversation, this, this instruction. And after that comes some severe warnings about uh, temptation and sinfulness. He says, if your hand or your foot or your eye causes you to sin, cut it off, pluck it out. Jesus is being emphatic and he's using hyperbole to say, don't hesitate to take extreme measures to deal with sin when it's necessary. When you deal with sinners and sin in your own body, you have to sometimes do surgery in the body of Christ and cut off those members who are corrupting and abusing and behaving shamefully. You can't ignore them. You must deal with them and you must take extreme measures to deal with them. And then Jesus layers in the parable of the shepherd who leaves the 99 to pursue the one lost sheep. The shepherd goes in search of the wanderer and he rejoices when the wanderer is found and restored. So then we have the responsibility to go, to initiate, to seek the reconciliation of the wayward. And then he tells us how to do it. Right after this parable, he says, moreover, if your brother sins against you, go, right? So he's just told us this, par told us this parable. If your brother has sinned against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Sometimes you go out and you gain a brother. Sometimes the process reveals that you're not dealing with a brother. You're dealing with a heathen because at the end of 17, he says, if he refuses to listen, let him be a heathen. The only way you figure that out though is to go and to initiate. And then after this section that I read, there's this parable on the man who was forgiven a great debt and turned around and abused somebody who owed him a small debt. And all of these things, all of this instruction and information colors and flavors this center section on dealing with problems among the brethren. And so let's, let's return to verse 15. Moreover, Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. First, off the top, notice that this is how we handle offenses with a brother. This is conflict management. This is dealing with offenses within the bounds of the covenant. We're talking about Christians and sins among Christians here who have a common vocabulary of forgiveness and restoration and peace and fellowship. 
You can try this with unbelievers, but you can't guarantee that they have the same vocabulary. You can't predict their responses. You do the best you can. You pursue them in love the same way. You follow the same principles, but there will come a point where repentance is necessary. And you may or may not get that. You may ask for forgiveness and you may or may not get that. And it, and, and it, may, it may get derailed. Uh, later, Jesus will say, if you're not making any headway, then take it to the church. Well, what is the church going to do with an unbeliever? You see, in many ways, it's more difficult with an unbeliever because in those situations, when there's an offense, we are the ones who have to teach and have to model what forgiveness is. We have to show what long-suffering and patience is, what it is like to absorb offenses and absorb shame on yourself without seeking retribution. But here in this context, we're talking about brothers. Who is your brother? Well, your brother is your husband or your wife or your son or your daughter, your sister, your brother, the people who share your faith in the Lord Jesus. This is how disciples of the Lord Jesus deal with problems together. That's the context, brothers. Secondly, Jesus says, this is a process you undergo when your brother sins against you. This is not a formula for how we deal with differences of opinion, uh, for example. It's, it's, not, it's not a sin to disagree. Disagreements can escalate into sin when we behave sinfully toward each other when we disagree. Then you have something to deal with, but, but we ought to disagree as friends. Sin is a transgression of God's law. And so unless we can define from God's word precisely how someone has sinned against us, well, then you can drop the process right here and let love cover whatever slight or disagreement you find yourselves in. Look to, look to, to, to come to agreement or look to come to uh, understanding. But, but this is a process that Jesus lays out for when there is a sin. If we're going to do this well, if, if, if we're going to handle this process well, it means that we're always considering the words and the actions of our brothers and sisters in the best possible light. Some of you are really good at doing that. You always are ready to assume the best. You're assuming that the people uh, around you are trying their hardest and doing their best. And so whatever you see and whatever you hear, you put the best possible light on it and you hear and you see charitably. You, you aren't looking for ways to get offended. You, you, aren't, you aren't looking for ways to start trouble. But I'm afraid that many of us are in a different category that we're prone to do the opposite. We're just geared to think the worst. And we let our imaginations run wild when we see or hear something. We say, oh, what, what did he mean by that? What, 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 why did she do that? Was that directed toward me? Were, were, they, were they dropping a hint there? What, what was going on? And we think in some ways that there's a conspiracy against us. We think that people are acting in concert to, to hurt or offend us and we get worked up when many of those situations are just something that love, love can cover. Paul, Peter tells us, uh, uh, Peter tells Christians in 1 Peter, he says, above all things have fervent love for one another for love will cover a multitude of sins. The degree of fervency of your love allows that love to cover a multitude of offenses. So I'm not looking for ways to be injured or offended. And you and I always have to check ourselves to be sure that if we're getting worked up, if we're getting bothered, it really is over sin. 
there has been some clear violation of God's word in view. We have to isolate it and use biblical language. We have the 10 commandments that tell us these 10 things, these are sins. And Jesus gives us another list in Mark chapter seven. He says, these are the corrupt things that come out of the heart. In Galatians five, we have the works of the flesh. We have biblical language to define and describe sin. There's no sin called, he looked at me funny. I mean, or, or uh, uh, the kinds of sins that come from the back seat of your car. He's touching me. I don't know that there's a sin called he's touching me or she's being weird. Um, I, don't, I, don't know, I don't know that those are sins. But God has given us lists of offenses and we're talking about sin. Be able to isolate and call sin, sin. This is important because next, if we're sinned against in a significant way, that can't simply be covered in love, then Jesus says, you must tell him his fault. That's what he says. The Lord Jesus says, go and tell him his fault. Now, telling means that you have to be able to articulate in biblical language, using the things that I just gave you, the resources I just gave you, the 10 commandments, Mark 7, Galatians 5, tell him his fault. This is what you did. Tell him. You can't harbor it. You can't be bitter over it. You can't tell somebody else. You can't bury it or wallpaper over it. You can't put it on your list to bring up down the road at a convenient time. The next time something else comes up. Remember that time when you did that five years ago? Well, I was really offended over that. And I don't even remember. I don't think I was there on that day. I don't, I don't think I've lived here. I don't, I, don't, I don't remember what you're talking about. You can't keep it back. You must approach and confront the offender with the sin. Now, this requires courage. This requires prayer and humility because you're going to have to recognize your own sin even in confronting another person on theirs. You're going to have to confess as you approach them your own lack of perception. You have to assume that you don't know the whole story. Next, this is a process that begins in private. Jesus commands us to tell uh, him his fault between you and him alone. This is the word of Jesus. He says, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. That is often precisely the thing that we don't do. You look at me funny or you do something that I assume is offensive. And then I go to somebody else and I say, what, what did he mean by that? Did you see what he did? Did you, did you hear that? Did you, did you see that thing she did? What was that about? And you confer over it together. You tell everybody else except the person who offended you. Remember back when we were talking about the ninth commandment, how we defined gossip? I'm going to repeat it. Gossip is telling somebody something when they are neither part of the problem nor part of the solution. Gossip is when you're talking about someone's actions to someone else who is neither part of the problem nor part of the solution. Now, if they're one of the offended parties, you may say, did, did I read that right? Did I understand that correctly? That, in that way, they're part of the solution or they're part of the problem. But to, but to just talk to anybody but the offender is sin. It's, it's doing the opposite of what Jesus says. And when you do that, when you go to the person who is the offender and you keep it between she and you alone, or, or the man and you alone. This keeps private sins 
private. There's a principle here of keeping the process as small as possible until you must include one or two, until you must include the church. It keeps private sins private. Now, I have to qualify this. And I pray and I trust that you understand these, these little footnotes are necessary. I, there are qualifications I have to make. Criminal acts like forms of abuse, felonies, those are not private sins. That's not between you and the other person. Those are, those are matters, those are grave sins that, that you must tell somebody. You have to get uh, the state involved in many cases to whom God has given the sword to deal with such offenses. Uh, so, so if we're talking about a criminal act, if we're talking about a felony, that's not a private sin. And I'm not talking about trying to hush-hush and cover up uh, felonies. Don't hear me say that at all. But many offenses in this category are not crimes. They're, they're not felonies. And the principle is, in most cases, to keep it between the offended party and the offender. This keeps small sins from getting out of control, from becoming bigger and more embarrassing and involving more parties than necessary. The goal must always, with few exceptions, the goal must always be to keep the process as small as possible and to keep as few people involved as possible so that the name of Jesus is not dishonored. Proverbs 25 says this, Debate your case with your neighbor and do not disclose the secret to another, lest he who hears it expose your shame and your reputation be ruined. Now, why does, why does Solomon say, keep it between you, lest your reputation be ruined? It's because we're in covenant together. And if I go spreading around your sin without dealing with it the right way, if we involve a whole lot of extra people that don't need to be involved, the, the name of Jesus is besmirched. The, the, your reputation is at stake. My reputation is at stake. And the reputation of the body of Christ is at stake. So private sins are confessed privately and dealt with privately. And we all have to be okay with the fact that there are things we don't need to know. There, there, uh, we have to be okay with other people uh, working things out and us not being a part of it. We don't, we don't have to uh, be nosy in the sense that, oh, I wonder what happened there. I need to know all the details. No, you don't. It's okay. Let them, let them work it out. Now, if this approach, if this conversation is received well, if you go and tell your brother his offense and he says, oh, no, I didn't mean to do that. Or, oh, you're right. That's what I did. I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. Help me to correct it. Help me make restitution. Let's work this out. Thank you for coming to me. Thank you for revealing this to me. Jesus says, you have gained a brother. You are actually in a better place than you were before the offense happened. You've now had an opportunity to grow in trust and intimacy. Peace and restoration is the goal at every step. Anytime the offender is ready to confess his sin and do whatever it takes to restore the relationship, the process is complete. But if that conversation is received poorly or if the counsel is ignored, then help must be obtained. You must appeal to the wisdom of others. Jesus says, if he will not hear, take with you one or two more that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. You take a couple other people and you say, They're, you know, I've tried to deal with this conflict. I think, I think this is an issue that I just can't let go. A sin was committed. There was offense. There was an injury. Something happened. And I just simply can't 
let it go. You get one or two other people to, to come with you. And these other two people may help you see your fault and say, what did, what did he do? No, that's, no, that's not, you're not thinking clearly. Maybe they'll help you see where you have sinned. Maybe you're the one in the wrong or you're misinterpreting God's word, calling something sin that isn't. Perhaps they will agree with you that the other brother is in sin and he does need to repent. But the process is still, you still see, we're keeping it as small as possible for as long as possible. Hopefully here or in the first step, the person recognizes their sin, they confess it, they take responsibility to repair the relationship, whatever it looks like, if it takes restitution. The goal here in bringing one or two others is to gain wisdom and counsel and understanding. You're trying to bring more light to the conversation. You need a couple of wise people to get their perspective, Jesus says, so every word may be established. You need help in many cases to make sure that the claims being made are true and that the things that were said and done really happened so that there's a careful and clear reporting on the facts of the case. Once again, Proverbs gives so much help here, so much instruction and essential information. Listen to Proverbs 18. There are three verses uh, right near each other. Proverbs 18 says, he who answers a matter before he hears it, it is folly and shame to him. The heart of the prudent acquires knowledge and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. The first one to plead his case seems right until his neighbor comes and examines him. We all need to get those into our head and to our heart and need to operate by every one of those Proverbs. It's Proverbs 18, 13, 15, and 17. I would underline them with a highlighter in my Bible and I would commit those to memory. Work those into your heart. Wisdom requires us to pause and wait and hear the whole story and reserve our thoughts and reserve our words and delay expressing ourselves until we have a complete picture. Whatever you think you know, whatever you think you see or hear, there is always more to the story. How many times have we heard or seen something and we just open up and we say, well, that's wrong or that's, uh, you, you, you just spill a big opinion and then you hear some more information like, oh, well, I didn't know that. And then you see, oh, there's, there's, more, there's more to the story. Wisdom dictates that we be patient to establish every word. Otherwise, Proverbs says it is a folly and it is a shame. It is foolish and shameful to just spew opinions without hearing the whole story. We bring other witnesses because wise men seek counsel. In the multitude of counselors, there's safety. Wise men want to be corrected when they're in the wrong. Wise men want to know when they're sinning. Wise men really want to know if they have offended or injured someone or because they want to make it right. Their own pride or sense of self is not what they're trying to preserve. This is not self-preservation. I want covenant preservation. I want truth and righteousness above all else. And so when you come to them, or when you come bringing others, uh, the, the wise man welcomes the opportunity because they want the truth and they want to do what is right. The fool is not interested in any of that. The fool leans on his own understanding. The fool surrounds himself with counselors who tell him what he wants to hear. The fool puts up defenses and barriers and closes his ear to wisdom. And that's what's gonna be revealed in this conversation when you bring one or two others. Are you dealing with a wise man, a, a wise man or are you dealing with a fool? So the next thing Jesus says to do 
is that if the others are convinced that the offender is in sin, and if no progress is being made, then he says, you must tell it to the church. Verse 17, if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. That means involving church leadership. There's a process of appeal in God's law. There's a process of, of everybody is, in, in, uh, is subject to someone else. Everyone answers to someone else. There is a hierarchy in God's order for society so that we're all men in submission to others and we put ourselves in subjection to authority. So my judgment is never absolute and it's never final. You can appeal. You can appeal to others. Bring in others. Let's talk to more. Let's get more involved. Let's understand what the facts of the case uh, are. And so this, this process is built, this process of appeal is built into Jesus's instruction. Talk to the elders. Talk to the pastor. Appeal to the greater community for their help in restoration because they have the ability to, to plead for repentance. And ultimately, we're calling for their authority and judgment if there never is repentance. At this point, you're saying, this is really bigger than me or my friends can handle. We need the church. And at this point, you're trying to determine, is the offender going to remember his vows? Remember, he's a brother. He's a brother. Is he going to remember his vows to pursue the peace and purity of the church? Is that what he's pursuing? Or, uh, or is he really a covenant breaker? Is he going to keep his vow to submit to the government of the church or, or is he being a, a rebel? Are you dealing with a person who respects and loves the church and loves the Lord Jesus and loves his brothers and sisters or is he just bent on doing what he wants to do? And if that's the case, after all three steps, you've gone, you've taken one or two others, and now you've told it to the church. If at this point, the offender never makes any movement toward repentance, or he never expresses his willingness to restore the peace, Jesus says, let him be to you like a heathen. Put him out of the community so that he will realize where his sins have taken him, and so that he'll understand you cannot act like an unrepentant pagan and still pretend to be a Christian. You can't simultaneously hold two identities. You must own one or the other. You're either in the church or you're not. Putting him out of the church, out of the community, forces him to deal with that reality. And even that is an effort at restoration of peace. Uh, you know, Paul had to deal with one of these very issues over in 1 Corinthians. And he says uh, to this man who's committing adultery with his stepmother, he says, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Even this act of putting someone outside of the church is an effort of restoration. It's turning them over to the Lord to get them to, uh, to, to, to deal with them and to uh, seek their repentance. So in order to be faithful, the church must deal with the offender, must be willing to deal with the offender this way. Remember what we saw last week in the 10th commandment with the boundaries that God has established in the world uh, and, and how God has established jurisdictions for the powers that he has ordained. The state is given the sword for defense of the righteous and punishment of the wicked. The faithful state will use the sword. The family is given the rod for discipline and instruction. So the faithful family must use the rod. The church is given the keys of the kingdom to admit and dismiss the church that will not use the kingdom, uh, the keys of the kingdom, repeats the sin of Adam in letting the serpent run free in the garden. So this duty of guarding begins not at the church government level, 
but at the individual level. I must discipline and I must guard my own life. I must govern my relationships according to the words of Jesus. I must govern myself under God's law. I govern my family. I govern my friendships. And when sin enters, when offense comes, I deal with it God's way. I don't have the option of ignoring what Jesus says. If I have to appeal, I do that. I do it humbly. I do it seeking the lost sheep. I do it to restore a brother. I do it to get to a better place, to seek reconciliation and the forgiveness that I have been given by Jesus. I want that to be shared and known among everybody. This way seems so hard, and I'll admit, this really sounds tough. This sounds really difficult. This seems like a whole lot of drama, right? This seems like a whole lot of conflict. But I guarantee you, the much more difficult way is to ignore what Jesus says. Don't do what Jesus says, and there is never peace. Things are not easy. Conflict multiplies. Your life becomes a soap opera if you ignore what Jesus says. Why do so many non-Christians have constant turmoil and instability in their lives? It's because they don't know how to solve problems. They don't know how to do it God's way. The Lord Jesus gives us his, his guidelines, his rule book. You don't make up your own rules here. House rules don't work. Follow the Lord Jesus. Trust him and obey him and have peace. Let's pray. Father, we pray that indeed you would give us opportunities to receive the instruction and the correction that we need to hear and receive. Give us the courage to be able to discern first, is this something that love can cover or is this something that I must pursue? And then by your spirit, if we must pursue it, we do it in humility and grace, that we speak the truth in love. Father, we can't do this apart from your Holy Spirit. So help us to obey and to do it faithfully. And Father, our goal is the preservation of the peace of the body of Christ. So Father, let your blessing rest upon us that we might do this well and pursue faithfulness in every facet of our relationships. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.